Well, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We did speak a little bit last week on these verses, um, but I wanted to touch base a little bit deeper, particularly in verses 19 through 20, exactly what Peter is addressing here to the churches. And the timing of this sermon series is leading up to an appropriate thing that I believe the Lord has allowed to happen is uh, next week we'll be looking at verses 21 through 22 dealing with baptism. And I think that's appropriate as the Lord has directed some two of, two of our members, two of our congregations to be baptized next week. And so I think that's an appropriate thing. I did not plan it that way. Just It's just when you're preaching through Scripture, when you're preaching through the Word of God, God directs the words that He wants us to hear. He directs the message at the right timing. And I just love the way the Lord has orchestrated uh, this week and next week together as we begin to think through what Peter is writing to the churches about Christ's death and resurrection, and then what that means to us in the church. And I love the way that God has orchestrated this. Um, and so we'll watch and see how the Lord uses this for his glory in these next few weeks. But if you will, let's stand together and read First Peter chapter 3. I want to read verses 18 through 20. Even though we looked at verse 18 last week, I want to read this in context with 19 and 20. And then we will understand what it is that God is trying to say to us today. First Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Mm. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are always good to us. It is through your grace that we have any hope of redemption. We are caught up in this whirlwind of sinfulness and worldly ways of, of being, and, and which actually centers on a selfishness that tears us apart from you. And I want to give you praise, God, and thank you for sending your son Jesus to break that. We live in a prison. We all do. Every one of us, whether we realize it or not, we're in a prison bound up by sin and those of us who actually hear the word of God and hear your proclamation being made, we, we trust, Lord, that you have redeemed us through the blood of your son. And we watch for that moment of salvation. We, Father, today know the truth of your gospel. And for that, God, we give you praise. And I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through this passage that has Many different interpretations throughout church history and different applications. Help us, God, to uh, unpack some of that today. But through that, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us exactly the meaning that you intend for us to see. Not that we manufacture for ourselves, God, but what is it that your servant Peter is trying to say through your direction and your Holy Spirit? Lord, it's a mystery what this salvation message is. Why did your son die on that cross? Why? 
Was he in the grave? We know he came out of it, but why did he go there to begin with? That's a mystery, Father, that we'll never fathom. Teach us. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. As we read through these passages, it's it's become very confusing as to exactly what Peter's intent is here. As he's telling us through the words to the churches, right? Remember, he's writing to the churches who are uh, in, in desperate situations, fearing for their life in some situations, definitely in persecution in all, all times. He's reminding them here exactly who they belong to, I think. I think Peter is trying to remind the church that it is Jesus Christ who suffered more than they currently suffer in their persecution and in their, and in their situations that they are in. Jesus Christ also suffered, but he suffered much more than they. They suffered once for sins. And then once that happened, God's glory was revealed. When we come to verse 19 here, because we looked at verse 18 last week, because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he being Christ might bring us to God. That was the purpose for Jesus' suffering on the cross, to restore what was broken through sin, to bring us back to God's presence. And in so being put to death in the flesh, he made, but made alive in the spirit. Now we come to verse 19, and this is, this is a verse that I touched on last week, but I want to unpack verse 19 and 20 together a little bit deeper. He continues in verse 19, in which he, speaking of Jesus, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, this is a passage that has had many different interpretations over the centuries of, of church history. Uh, many people are, are they, they seem to impose something upon it. Uh, I think if we unpack some of that today, we'll figure out what does this mean. Because church tradition is very clear. When Jesus died on that cross and he was in the grave for those three days, did he just lay in a tomb? Was he just this slab of a body laying on a stone? And he just woke up. What happened? Church tradition says that Jesus, during that time of death, actually descended to the dead or into death himself. Why? This is the this is the mystery of the gospel. This a lot of this comes through church tradition. A lot of this comes through doctrine in the church. Helps us to try to navigate this. But there are multiple uh, points of interest here. Some, I think. Agree, some do not. Let's just try to understand what this means. I, I, I speak to some Christians who for years have never understood that when Jesus died and was in the grave for three days, that church tradition says that he descended into hell or descended to the dead. Depends on your translation. I remember the first time that I encountered this passage, um, I was uh, 18 years old. I'd grown up in the church. I never really studied the texts like this before. Now, when, at that time, though, this was back in the... Uh, uh, 70s and 80s, um, when the uh, name it and claim it, prosperity, end time, Jesus is coming back, apocalyptic gospel was very popular, right? Where they translated Revelation that the locusts that came and destroyed the world was actually a bunch of Apache helicopters. That was the definition back then. I don't, I don't think that's right, but. And I ran across this passage. I was actually in the military. I was in, in Germany at the time. I was serving in Germany. I was 18 years old. And I had become part of a Bible study. The Lord had introduced me to some wonderful Christian people who ministered to American Christians in the military. Um, and, and we gathered every Thursday night in a home in Germany for Bible study. And this came up in one of the Bible studies. And I had never seen this before. 
No one had ever taught me in the church that Jesus, in his death, actually descended into either hell or death, whatever. We're going to unpack that. What translation does that mean? I said, wait a minute, what, what happened there? I didn't, I didn't know this. This was news to me. And no one in the Bible study could give me an answer. I said, I, I've never read this before. What does this mean? And the only answer they gave me was, well, maybe God doesn't want you to understand it today. I didn't like that answer. And so, I mean, this is part of church tradition. So let's try to unpack this today. I think, I mean, we look here at verse 19 particularly. I want to break down some of the words here that are being used by Peter, which help us perhaps dissect what Peter is actually intending to say. In which he, and you could put in parentheses there, in which Jesus, I don't want to change scripture, but that's what he is, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In his death, because clearly Christ died on the cross. Can we say that is true? Amen? Amen. He was not some ghost or figment of our imagination, some spirit being that really was not human, who, uh, who fainted death. That's, that's a heresy that's been out there in the church. He died. And, and so he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, implying that in death, Jesus goes to a particular place. I think that's very clear. It's very important that Jesus in that death, he goes to a place and he proclaims to beings, spirits. He's proclaiming something to someone who are in what is called here or translated a prison. Let's break this down. To proclaim here is actually perhaps to preach, perhaps even to, to, to speak something, some kind of big, of important news. And some have, have claimed that this word here implies that Jesus went and preached the gospel. And what is the gospel? To preach the gospel means to preach a message of salvation and repentance. That's one approach to this text. I'm going to argue that's not what this means. And here's why. The word used here that is translated proclaimed is a word that is not generally used for the term to evangelize. I mean, there's a Greek word that means to evangelize that is some, that is oftentimes translated to proclaim or to preach. But this word here is a unique word. It does mean to proclaim something. It does mean to announce something. But it, but this particular Greek word is actually used in many contexts as if somebody, a, a herald of someone going before the king or before the royalty to announce he's coming. Or he's, he's, he's just coming down the road. I'm here to prepare you. Here he comes. So this is a different word used to preach or to proclaim. It's more of a heralding rather than a preaching of good news. Right? Like if I'm a preacher preaching the gospel, I will preach an evangelistic type message. That word for evangelism is often used in scripture to preach a message of salvation. That's not the word used here. So I would argue that if this is the word that Peter is using, that Jesus, when he goes to this place, he is not preaching a message of evangelism. He's not preaching a message of repentance here. The word here actually implies perhaps Jesus goes as a herald to proclaim the glory of his father, the glory of the message or the glory of of conquering sin and death. I am the king. I am here. I think that is more the implication here. Now, the spirits that he speaks to, this gets a little dicey, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits. 
I mean, this this is where scholars are going to dissect and, and again, which word is being used and what does it imply. And some would argue that when Jesus goes and proclaims to the spirits, he's actually proclaiming to human souls, those who have died before the birth of Christ, before they could ever actually witness Christ. And, and, and they, you know, because sin is not atoned for until Jesus dies on the cross. So you, you work into this logical paradox here. Okay, well, if, if only those who are saved by the blood of Christ can only be saved after Jesus dies on the cross, what do you do for those millions and millions and millions of people who lived before Jesus ever lived? Some argue that this text says that Jesus goes to preach a message of repentance and evangelism to those people. I'm going to disagree. I want to disagree. Now, hold on to it. We're going to break this down a little bit today. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, if you want to go into the Greek here, we won't go into too deep. But the Greek here, that word for spirits, is not generally the word used for human souls. There's a different word in the Greek that you could translate spirits if you intended the human spirit or the human soul. Some would argue that this word implies demonic spirits. As if Jesus is proclaiming, I am the conqueror and the victor even over you. That's just one opinion. We're going to break down a few more. And this prison that they are in, what does this mean? Some would argue in this verse that this prison is actually hell. This bondage of eternal torment that God sends all those who rebel against him to, to be hell. Some people say this is what this implies. Some people say it's not. Let's take a look at what they say. John Calvin actually disagrees that Jesus actually goes to a place that would be called hell or a place of torment. Now, I don't know if I fully agree with Calvin on this, but it's interesting what he says. I think what he says here, there is some importance here I think is worth bringing out. He said, Calvin argues, John Calvin argues that Christ did not descend into hell, but rather Christ descended to the dead. And he's trying to isolate which one is which. But let me, let me, before we go there, I want to read the Apostles' Creed to you because is anybody ever familiar with the Apostles' Creed? It's a, it's a document of the church that has been around since the, the first centuries of the church, and it is a, a creed of faith that Christians will agree this is the found, or at least the summary of the gospel, of what we believe. I'm going to read this to you. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believed in, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, or some versions, he descended to hell. Depends on the version you look at. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints and forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the, that's the Apostles' Creed. So this tradition of Jesus dying and, and descending is foundational even in the Apostles' Creed. It's there. But what does it mean? John Calvin's argument, I think, brings out an important point. I don't, again, I don't know if I fully agree with him or not, but we'll see. We're going to compare him with one other argument here in a second. Well, actually, I won't compare three. I can summarize first. One of the most traditional ways of interpreting this from the Catholic Church 
is that this place Jesus goes to is a holding center for all souls, kind of like a, a middle ground purgatory. And Jesus goes there and preaches the gospel and gives them an opportunity to repent. That's one traditional way of seeing this. And I think John Calvin's point to refute that, it, it makes sense. He said, I mean, here's the thing. Why would God put into a temporary prison souls of the godly or the redeemed people? So it, if if God sends people to this temporary place, there's two ways. Either he sends people there to the temporary place who were not Christians, who did not believe in their life, or he sent people there who believed in God and, and, and had faith that a redeemer would come, but they never knew Jesus. So there's two different types of souls here at play. Which one is it? Or is it both? If God sends the godly people to this temporary prison, then why would God put into prison those that he redeemed through faith in Christ? Even if Christ was not there. If, if faith is counted as righteousness, as what the scriptures say about Abraham, right? Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about this in depth. Those who came before Christ, even though they did not know Christ, they trusted that their Redeemer would come, and that was enough for them to, quote, be redeemed. It's not what Jesus does, which is important, is the point. It's more or less what we trust that Jesus has done or is doing that saves us. Yes, it, Jesus did physically come. He did come at a point in history. And yes, he was crucified in real time, in a real human body, and he physically died. But does that mean those who came before Christ were somehow just left out because they missed it? They were born at the wrong time? No. Because what does save us? What saves us is faith in Christ. Faith in God's promise of redemption. Now, that can come either whatever timeline, before or after. Now, we who come after this timeline, we have no excuse. We know the truth. We know who Jesus is. We know the details. We know the facts. Those who came before Christ, their faith was stronger because they didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know the details of crucifixion. They didn't know the gore of death that Jesus would suffer. They just knew that God would redeem. And that was enough. Now, here's the question. If these people before Christ had that strong of faith, and Hebrews chapter 11 says that those patriarchs of the church have more faith than we do because they were, they had nothing to base their faith on other than pure trust. Why would God send them to a holding place waiting for God? Are waiting for Christ. That doesn't make sense. I think that argument falls flat. If this prison then, well, first of all, we have to ask what this prison is. I think this is part of the issue. Here's what John Calvin says. He says this word for prison is not necessarily the prison that we're used to thinking about. It's not this prison of torment as much as this word here used for the prison can actually be translated like a watchtower. What do you do in a watchtower? Those who may have worked like in a fire line or uh, been in the military. What do you do in a watchtower? You're watching for something. Someone is on guard, always up high, looking out over the horizon, looking for someone to come, looking for whatever danger is coming. If this is implied, if this prison, according to John Calvin, is a watchtower, then even those before Christ are watching for their Redeemer to come. 
So if this prison is a watchtower, then someone is watching for something or someone to come. Godly souls watching for the hope of salvation that is promised to them could apply here. So if this is the case, then the translation prison is appropriate because if we are living in sin, if we even if we are in faith in Christ, even though we're looking forward to the hope of redemption, are we not in this spiritual prison today of a fallen world where we're struggling and our flesh is battling with faith? Is that almost a torture? Is that almost a prison? This is what John Calvin argues. Now, the other kind of people who could be in this place are those who rejected all trust and faith in God. Even before Jesus, they could say, I don't want anything to do with redemption. I know that God has abandoned me. I'm on my own. If you do that, there is no more hope because you're not embracing the hope. Is it that God gives them a second chance because they were just missing out? I don't think that applies here at all. I don't think it can, because what does, what does faith require? Faith requires trust. Is God the God of second chances? Absolutely. But that doesn't apply to eternity. If these souls are, if that's what this means, if this means that these are souls waiting for Jesus to come and preach the truth to them, I think that doesn't work. Because faith in Jesus Christ and that redemption can only happen in this world. Not in the eternal. Because what is the definition of eternal? Here, the part of the confusion in, in translating this and understanding this is that when we think of eternity, we think of a timeline. We think, okay, if we die today, how many thousands of years will it be before the judgment? And what are we going to do in those thousand years? We're going to get bored, right? But we misunderstand what eternity means. To be eternal has been described as an ever-present now, with no sense of time, no timeline like you and I are used to. Eternity is this ever-present right now. You're not thinking about it yesterday. You're not thinking about it tomorrow. You're not thinking about, boy, what am I going to do between now and then? I won't get bored. That's not even possible in the state of eternal. The state of eternal means ever-present now. So once we enter into eternity, whatever state our soul is in, At that point, we cross over into eternity. That will be our state for an ever-present now forever. So those who have died ignoring and abandoning the hope in Christ, that is their state for eternity. Because it's not a timeline of thousands of years as we understand it. It's an eternity of ever-present now. Whatever your state of mind is at the point of death, I would argue, biblically, is the state of your soul. Now, let's go further. Kind of off on a little bit of a sidetrack here. I apologize. John MacArthur actually has a different take on this passage. Part of me agrees with him. Part of me does not. But I think he has a pretty good argument. In, in some ways, MacArthur agrees with Calvin. But I think in another ways, John MacArthur disagrees with Calvin. Because John Calvin is arguing that these souls are human souls, the dead. Uh, But it's only those who are in Christ. Now, John MacArthur is going to disagree. Whereas John Calvin sees this prison as a watchtower where the souls are looking for their Redeemer, just like they were in their life on earth. They were looking for that Redeemer. John MacArthur is going to disagree. He's going to say that this prison is actually tied to the idea of the bottomless pit that is mentioned in Revelation. Right? 
What does this bottomless pit look like in Revelation? It's the place where God casts the Satan and his demons. It's a bottomless, tormented fire pit of torture for eternity. John MacArthur says this prison that Jesus goes to is what this is. It's eternal torment of the, demo, of the demonic spirits. I think perhaps there might be some validity to this. If you look over at 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter continues to speak in chapter 4 of this same idea, verses 4 through 6. Speaking about, prior to that, that Jesus comes and preaches to the living and the dead, talking about the Gentiles who live in a uh, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That really almost describes in verse 3 uh, a state of living death, really. A torturous torment of your sinful existence. Verse 4, though, here's what he says. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that through ju- that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I'm going to argue that this meaning here of preaching to the living and the dead is not preaching to those who have physically died, but those who are dead in their spirit from torturous, sinful debauchery and, and living. That's a prison. That, I mean, you're really dead that way. You're dead in your sin. I think that's what's implied here. But the judgment here comes to the living in Christ and to the dead who are in sin. What does this mean? Let's go, let's read a little bit further. If you, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, you see that he's talking here about Jesus proclaiming to these spirits in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, verse 20, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now we've got a, a, a dilemma in the argument. Now Peter is talking about Noah. First of all, he's talking about Jesus descending into hell or descending to the dead, preaching to them, proclaiming his glory. And Peter uses an example. This is just like Noah. The story of Noah. What happened in the story, in the days of Noah? Noah preaches the gospel for how many hundreds of years? 120 years. How many people listened? Eight. Well, seven if you count, yeah, eight if you count Noah. Noah and his family. That's it. Well, I think, I think that's, why is this important? John Calvin actually points to the context of Noah's family here, right? The patriarchs, godly fathers, or again, like I mentioned, we're all watching for Christ even into death. The ungodly, according to Calvin, were those who ignored Noah. And they did not care to repent, and they would not be looking for Christ himself. So there is no hope. Those who, in this text, speak about redemption, those who were saved were those of the family of Noah. They were saved in a type of baptism in the flood. That's going to be an important point for next week. But John MacArthur disagrees. He says that these spirits are those that were once, who once were disobedient in the days of Noah. John MacArthur is going to argue were actually the demons who cohabited with human women following Satan's fall from heaven. Now let's go back a little bit and give a little bit of background here. What's happening? See, this, this, these texts just bring up all kinds of different interpretations. It's weird. That's why we have to kind of unpack some of this. John MacArthur is going to argue that 
before the, or actually in the days of Noah, leading up to his building of the ark and God's flooding of the earth, there was a time where fallen angels in heaven fall to earth with Satan and his demons, and they cohabitate with earthly women, and they produce a race of people called the Nephilim. Right? Have you ever heard about them? You, you read about this in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to go there and read it, but if you want to take notes, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, leading up to Genesis chapter 6 is the story of Noah, but the first four verses tell you what's happening. This was in the day of the earth when fallen angels cohabitated with earthly women and they produced a race of people that were really gigantic and they were these superhuman, almost demigod-type people, not really gods, but you know, a lot of the, the mythologies that we have in human traditions probably come from this period. John MacArthur is arguing, some, some other people agree with this. They say that those who were once disobedient are actually these demons who fell to earth and produced this race of humans or semi-humans or whatever that were wiped out in the flood. Now, why is this important? Because Peter here is actually referring to the book of Enoch. In Second Peter chapter 2, flip over to Second Peter chapter 2. I know we're flipping around a lot today. I apologize. We're going to wrap this up right now. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and then 9, actually 4 through 9 if you want to read the whole thing, speaks about angels sinning and falling to the earth and causing corruption. Peter implies this same idea when he's writing in First Peter chapter 3, I believe. First, uh, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the godly. And then drop down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I think here what Peter is talking about, this judgment is not the judgment that Jesus does in the three days. I think Peter is almost looking to the end times judgment when all of humanity is finally before the throne of God and they are judged for their life. But this Section in Second Peter chapter 2 is referring to a work from Enoch. Now, what does that mean? The book of Enoch tells apocalyptic stories of end times, but more specifically of the, of the Nephilim, right? These angelic human beings. The book of Enoch was a, a work that was not part of Old Testament scriptures, not part of the Hebrew canon of scripture, but it was it was a, a work that many people referred to, and Peter refers to it often in his writings, and even uh, Jude. Flip over to Jude, verses 5 through 6. Jude 5 through 6 is a direct quote from the book of Enoch. I'm sorry, verse 14. Verse 14 is a direct quote, but Jude, verses 5 through 6, gives evidence and, and follows Peter's talk here. Now, I want to remind you, though, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Now that talks about the final judgment. That gives evidence that the fallen angels are currently in a state of prison. Now, does, Je- does this mean that Jesus in his three days goes and releases these folks and judges them then? I, I don't think so. I think this clearly means that this judgment is still yet to come. But verses 14, 14 and 15 of Jude is a direct quote from the book of Enoch. It says this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a direct quote from the book of Enoch. Now, why is this important? Who was Enoch? And what is his relationship to Noah? Right? Peter refers to the books of Enoch often. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. Enoch was the father of Methuselah. For Peter to mention the story of Noah here and those who were believers and non-believers, those who were saved in the flood, those who rejected the gospel and, and were destroyed in the flood, I think ties directly here to this end times imagery from the book of Enoch. It was very popular. It was apocalyptic literature. Peter is referencing this in his writings. He's influenced here. So that perhaps, perhaps, the argument from John MacArthur that this is a spiritual warfare discussion, I think, might be right. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 3 as a spiritual warfare, that perhaps this judgment's still going to come at the end. I don't you know if it's perhaps. So that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of different ways to look at this. So what do I what do I think? Here's what I think. Flip with me over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to close with this. This will be the last thing we say. I promise. Okay? Here's what I think. I think people like John MacArthur and I think people like John Calvin, I think they are they have some pretty good points. But I think ultimately, whatever Jesus did in those three days, we're not going to fully know until the end. I don't think he went there to give sinners a second chance at redemption. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think he went there to give the demons a chance to ask forgiveness either. I don't think that's biblical. I think Jesus goes to wherever he goes to this spiritual place, this spiritual prison, to proclaim that he is the victor. I think he goes there to proclaim, I have conquered death. I have conquered sin. That's the point. Now, the details of that we'll figure out when we get to the judgment throne. But in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Because we're trying to understand 1 Peter chapter 3, I think it's good to go back to Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. He's going to help us understand what he means. Beginning of verse 22. Peter says this on his large sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, underline this. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. For David says concerning him, we read this this morning. I saw the Lord always before you, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What does Peter mean here? Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. See, David's hope was in a future descendant that he did not know. Verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are a witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is Peter saying here? Jesus Christ conquered death in all of its ugliness, in all of its torture, in all of its imprisonment. Jesus could not be held by death. Amen? And even in the times of Noah, as Peter would have been influenced by the writings of Enoch, because it was a very popular apocalyptic literature of the day. You think apocalyptic stories are new today. They were always around. And they were very popular in the early church because they did. They thought, and they rightly so, but perhaps interpreted differently, that this was the end times. Jesus Christ, the Savior that we worship, the Savior that redeemed us, could not be held by death. And as such, he passes judgment. He conquered death and he passes judgment over the living and the dead, everyone will answer to the name of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter's talking about here. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he mentions here to the church, talking about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, he's talking about all sinners, He's talking about all who reject the Lord. He's talking about all those who struggle in this prison of sin. By giving an example here of even those in the days of Noah who rejected salvation then. And that's going to lead to this discussion of baptism. And we'll look at that next week. Amen. What baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes this redemption that is only available through Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to leave it right there. We'll look at that next week. Amen? Y'all ready to come back? Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, your word is difficult at times. And we can play scholarly games back and forth about what the meaning of your word is. And we can get an understanding. But Father, the biggest theme that is clearly evident in all of your scripture is that you are God. Your son is the victor over death. And your Holy Spirit leads us to that hope and directs us in the God of the living. I pray, God, that whatever you have us to do in your kingdom, we would be reminded that your son, Jesus Christ, paid a large price for that. And that Jesus Christ is that Savior, the only Savior, your son, who suffered more than we could imagine. But he fought a spiritual battle that we cannot see. 
And because of that, dear God, I pray that you would encourage us that whatever we're struggling with, our Savior Jesus Christ conquered more, and we can trust him in that. I thank you for that truth, and I thank you for loving us and providing that for us. Lord, I pray right now that your spirit would be in this place and that you would love us and you would remind us of where our salvation comes. Love us, Father, we pray, even in our sin. We thank you for rescuing us from that bondage. We thank you, God, for redeeming us through the blood of your Son. This is your time, Father, as we close. Speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.